Welcome everyone to episode 18, Profitability and Profit Margin. This is our most requested topic, so I'm very excited to go through it. I'm Nikki Atwood and I'm joined by Libby Lossing. Hey y'all, we're really excited to get to talk about this. Matt Diamond from Mathnasium of Tina requested this a really long time ago, so I'm sorry that you've been waiting so long, Matt. And then Derek Pipcorn from Tosa and Mequon followed up and said, please, please record this episode. So we're excited to get to it. Today we're gonna to be talking about profitability and profit margin. So we're gonna go over a book that I recently read called Profit First by Michael Michalowicz. We're gonna discuss the difference between fixed expenses and variable expenses as it pertains to Mathnasium. And then we're gonna wrap it up by discussing how MCOs view the profitability of a portfolio versus our individual learning center locations. But before we get started, I'm in the mood for frogs, Nikki. So we're talking about frogs today. What is your frog? Oh man, I feel like I had a ton of little, I was trying to name the frogs last episode. So this time it was also a ton of little dart frogs. So, <laughs> so I don't know if everybody knows, but my email is my to-do list. Like I send myself emails of things that I need to do. And there were some that have just been like hanging out there because it was just a bunch of difficult conversations of like vendors that like weren't meeting my expectation or like vendors that were like, hey, I'm raising the price. And I'm like, hey, that's not what I signed on for. So like, you're not gonna do that. And I just had to tackle all those great conversations this week. So it was a lot of standing my ground and telling people no and sticking up for the company when people were trying to push us around. So, you know, lots of not super fun conversations to have and they were just all kind of compiled in my email. Awesome. My frog this week, so mine's more like, mine's a little bit more personal, but it's a little bit professional. I joke a lot about the fact that my work-life balance is like a 95-5 split, but I'm dating now, so I kind of feel pressured to think about working someone else in my schedule more. So I'm learning to compromise with my time, which is not something I've had to do for like over a year now. Okay, so... Libby, you summarized what we're going to go through with this episode, and I feel like that might have been an oversimplification. We have a lot of stuff to go through, and this first one is something that I think is really important and also really unique to our industry. I really want everyone to understand that profit is not evil, and it's something that we run into a lot because we're a really unique blend of education and retail. Like I'm part of a group where I meet with other sales leaders and I try really hard to like explain how our industry works. And they all just kind of like look at me with like their head cocked and they're a little confused. And I'm like, no, like I have salespeople and education people and that blend tends to create this clash and I don't really understand why because like we are in this really unique position where we have the luxury of providing families with a solution to like their very dire needs that affect their lives their kids lives and we are just fortunate enough that we are able to make a living off of it as well 
So I don't know if you run into this, Libby. I run into it with center directors once in a blue moon where every sob story they feel like personally responsible for like helping solve someone's woes. But I just try and explain to them that yes, we are a business first and by charging for our services, it's what's going to fuel us to be able to do our jobs better and eventually at a larger scale. Like I can hire better instructors if I charge a little bit more for my services. And if I have better instructors, I'm going to better serve the children who are able to enroll in our program, that kind of thing. Yes, that's huge. I don't know if you've ever volunteered with any organization or like done any like nonprofit work before this. Not consistently no but like obviously I volunteer I'm not like a complete shithead <laughs> yeah just like all my experience with like volunteering and like working with nonprofits, like it's just really really hard to like get the resources you need to do the job you want to do and make the impact you want to make at the scale in which that can really make the difference and so like the exchange of funds for goods and services is just, it's not a bad thing. It just is how the world works. And it's the way that we can make a difference in the lives of children, but also make a difference for ourselves and our families and make a difference for all the people that we employ. There is a just second layer to the impact when it's a for-profit organization. There's a lot of members of the Mathnasium community that don't keep track of things in QuickBooks and don't monitor expenses and really just blend their personal finances with their business ones. And that is what's going to get you into trouble. Let's go ahead and transition into Profit First, which is a book by Michael Michalowicz that I read. We're going to hit some of the key talking points from the book, and then Nikki and I are just going to comment on them as we see and how they pertain to our business. The first thing that Michael talks about, a lot of the talking points on his book, I was joking with Nikki earlier that I don't feel like these are like crazy, profound concepts. And Nikki's like, I think you just have a different level of exposure to these things than the average person. So if you're with me, awesome. If this is like new and revolutionary to you, I'm excited to get to share it with you. So the first thing he talked about was the envelope system. So I grew up with two parents who did the envelope system. So what that is, if you don't know, is basically you take your paycheck, or if it's a business, you take your revenue, and then you go ahead and pre-categorize out money into separate envelopes or separate bank accounts, as Michael describes the situation. And you have things like if you're, like if we're looking at the envelope system on a personal level, you can have your envelope for groceries, your envelope for your mortgage slash rent, your envelope for electricity, water, and then you have like your date night funds, and you just split up your paycheck into the different envelopes. And the goal is that you never take out of the wrong envelopes. So if you know you need $50 for your electric bill, you don't make that bill more than $50. And you don't spend more than $200 on groceries, and you don't wanna to have to pull from other envelopes. But the goal is that one of the envelopes is savings and that you're gonna be able to save towards something on top of like managing your finances. So the envelope system for the Profit First book really focuses on the fact that you need to put your profit in an envelope and have that as like your own protected, like think about your profitability first, like set that money aside, allow yourself to be profitable from day one and don't like 
kick it down the road and say, I'll be profitable one day. I have to like earn my way to profitability and then have stuff like an expense account where this is how much money you have to spend on expenses and you learn to live within your means. An example he uses with this is that if you want to eat less, you want to use a smaller plate. So don't give yourself a big budget for expenses. Give yourself a reasonable budget for your expenses and then learn to operate within how much you have financially accounted for. I love how this is like personal finance and business finance. Like they just pertain to the same thing. And this envelope system is super trendy right now. You can go on Amazon and buy like cute little kits that are like all color coded. So I don't know if people have heard of the envelope system for their personal finances, but I get it for a business or organization. I feel like the one thing that's missing, I don't know if this is because you're like paraphrasing Libby, but you need to do some research to figure out how much you need to put in each envelope. Like it's not just a, oh, I'm going to guess and put like, 20% into this envelope. Like you need to like do some market research. You need to track what your current expenses are. You need to do some projections and do some Googling or searching on Amazon of like how much these things are going to cost or like what the general market is for labor and like what your wages are going to be. So do research in order to figure out what goes into these envelopes. Yeah. My favorite thing, whenever I first started being involved in our franchise as like an adult is the word pro forma. I didn't know what a pro forma was and I'm like, ooh, buzzword. And I found every reason to use pro forma in a sentence whenever I was like first starting out in 2017. So pro forma is like make, like Nikki said, make projections and make business plans so that way you know what these allotments need to be. Awesome. His next talking point, and I kind of hit on it a little bit, is that you need to learn to escape the mode of um, you're gonna focus on growth now and then you're gonna make profit someday. And so I think this is really critical, and I think this is a mistake that we see a lot of franchisees make, specifically franchisees that one day sell to us, the people we get our resales from, is that their focus is on doing what everyone else is doing. They're going to just grow, grow, grow. We're going to, like, break 100 students. We're going to do whatever it takes to break 100 students. We're going to just, like, cut our prices and run promotional specials out the wazoo. And then one day it's going to be 100 students, and then we're going to raise prices to a reasonable cost. And at that point, you have so little profitability to your business that it's not sustainable and you're going to have to just hand over the keys to someone else to take over your 100-kid enrollment. What are your thoughts on that, Nikki? I think I would just rephrase this into thinking of things to be efficient and effective. You want to be lean and get the job done and like serve your customers well. So you don't want complete austerity, which is a word I recently learned, So it's all about like serious budget cutting. Like you want to be able to still grow and still think of like the money you're spending as investing in your business, but it's not putting your wants over your needs. Awesome. And then the next talking point for Michael was that you must figure out the things that make profit and dump the things that don't. So I think this is interesting for us because we have a franchise business model where there's pretty much our core program, which I think most of our core programs is just the monthly Mathnasium membership. And so it might be unlimited for your center. It might be anywhere from eight to 12 sessions a month at your location. It really varies by the owner, but that's pretty much our core offering. 
Um, and his book obviously pertains to a lot of different businesses. So the way I viewed this one was stuff like if you want to offer session packages or if you want to offer a multiplication boot camp, or if you want to do like camp mathnasium and do the extra STEM offerings, that kind of thing, you have to really take a hard look at those offerings and decide for yourself, is this profitable enough that it's something I want to continue to offer? Or is this just like an unnecessary expense and like the labor costs and the amount of work that goes into offering the service? It isn't outweighed by your profitability. So I know for my learning centers, this used to be offering private tutoring, where private tutoring became something that wasn't feasible for us because it just cost us too much to have someone off the floor. And I could charge someone $60 an hour and have a lot of pressure from that customer and feel like I can't meet their demands properly. Or I could just run the play and offer our core product and not make $60 an hour offering private tutoring. But I feel like my service was better and I feel like my profitability was better off the core program. See, I look at this a little bit differently. Like I think of all the like extra little initiatives and extra little like fun things we do for families. And there's a lot of things that people ask me for and I just counter with why. Like, do you want to do that? Like, what are you getting out of it? Like I, I think of a conversation or I've had with people about like discounts, for example. Like discounts aren't a gift discounts are a thank you for doing something that we want you to do. So for example, if you come in and bring your child in and do the like initial discovery and like do the initial diagnostic and then enroll in the program quickly, then we usually give a discount off of the enrollment fee there. And that isn't a gift. It's a thank you for not requiring us to follow up over and over and over again. I look at this quote as figure out the things that give you a return on your investment and cut out the things that either aren't bringing in more revenue or aren't cutting cost. I like that. And now that you've said that, I like want to go in and impose like, if you enroll within 48 hours, it's $100 off your assessment and registration. Otherwise, I'm charging you the full 149 I like it. Yeah. All kinds of ideas out of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) His next talking point. Okay. The survival trap. So we kind of talked about this with Ronnie where there's ebbs and flows to your finances. Like sometimes you're like looking at your bank account and you're like, I'm the wealthiest man on earth. And then sometimes you look at your bank account and you're like, oh my gosh, I need to like pinch every penny and I'm eating nothing but like ramen noodles for the next month. That kind of thing. So Michael talks about the survival trap of what people do whenever they look at their bank account and their bank account looks bad and those kinds of like last ditch efforts that people might like be grasping at straws in order to save themselves. And I think this is kind of interesting because right now we're going through the coronavirus pandemic and I feel like everyone's financial statements kind of look terrible. I need to put in the caveat that like I have no ownership stake in the organization that I work for. I work really hard, but I, I do not have like my life savings in this organization. So there's a lot of business owners that listen to our podcast. And so I really want to add the caveat of like, I am not exactly in your shoes, but I have been put in the position that I am because I've made decisions as if I was in your shoes. I think I was speaking more broadly, just like I think all small businesses were negatively impacted by the coronavirus. 
And if nothing else, even if you're making decent money right now, you probably had a lot of unanticipated expenses, whether it's buying PPE for your staff or having to do training to have people offer services in a different delivery method. Like for us, I had to train a ton of people on the at-home platform, spent hundreds of payroll hours on training that I didn't think I was going to have to do that quickly with that many staff members, that kind of thing. So hopefully everyone's financial statements look great, but I'm just being a little bit more realistic in my opinion that they probably aren't like shining right now. So let's talk about the survival trap. So these are some like tactics, like common tactics that business owners go through in order to try and like create an artificial sales spike for themselves or bring in revenue to be able to bail themselves out of a predicament. So number one is that you'll take on a troublesome client for quick revenue and then you'll hope you don't regret serving them. So for us, this could be stuff like they're not aligning with how our methodology works. So they're like, yeah, 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 you have your own curriculum, but I really want just homework help. I really want just private tutoring. I want you to help my kid with their online class, which we do those things, but it's not our primary product line. Next, it's to offer a new product that can make immediate revenue, but it's gonna distract your staff and it's gonna pull your resources in multiple directions. This could be something like putting together a camp where maybe you didn't have like the time and energy to really dedicate time to this camp and all it's gonna do is distract you from your core offering. And then next it's to hire an expert to instantaneously expand a service offering. That's a really expensive thing to do. So I don't really know if there's an applicable example from Athnasium for us hiring an expert for the sake of being able to sell something quickly, but there's plenty of people who don't own Mathnasium to listen to our podcast, so hopefully that will help one of you guys. Next, it's to run a last-minute promotion to generate quick cash, and oh my gosh, I'm going to say this one again because this is actually like the most common thing I see in our franchise, is to run a last-minute promotion to generate quick cash, which as a franchisee with very close neighbors drives me batshit insane. I hate when that happens. So we talked about it a little bit earlier, like you really shouldn't cut into your own profit margin for the sake of bringing on a customer because those are lesser quality customers, honestly. Next, it's to take on an unfit project to cover this month's payroll. Again, this is probably more pertinent to the people who don't own a mathnasium because we have franchise standards that prevent us from doing this. That'd be something like if you wanted to offer like Spanish tutoring out of your learning center for a couple months because you're like, Oh, there's a market for this, but in reality, like, not really what I'm intending to do. Don't take on an unfit project just for the sake of covering payroll. You could change your terms. You can make collection calls. You can ask for retainers, and it's, like, a way to speed up your cash flow. So that would be something, like, if you emailed all your parents, like, your monthly membership just went up 20 bucks. See you September 1st. And then the last one is to do the work yourself because no one else can do it for you as cheaply as you can do it for yourself. There's a lot of these that are really tempting. It's really tough. There's some that like we've done. And as you were going through the list, Libby, I was like, oh crap. But then when I started to think about it, I was like, wait, there was a larger why of why we were doing the items. Like why we were doing like a special Black Friday sale, for example. Like the Black Friday sale was in conjunction with a longer term membership. Like it was a lower the barrier to entry and then like here's your long-term effect your long-term benefit 
and our long-term accomplishment of the Mathnasium mission. So I was like doing a lot of self-reflection as you were going through that list. And this isn't to say don't run promos. It's to say like, don't look at what this month's revenue is on the 10th of the month and then think, oh shit, I should probably do free assessment and free two weeks and do a prepay and you can have an additional two months. Like don't, don't go crazy. Like keep it within reason. And there are reasonable offers for any business. The next talking point from his book is Parkinson's Law. So Parkinson's Law is that the demand for something expands to match its supply. So he uses like a, tooth, a tube of toothpaste as his example to like model what this means. With Parkinson's Law, it trigger, there's two triggered behaviors whenever supply of something is scant. So one, you can become more frugal. So if you know that you're running low on toothpaste, you're just going to naturally put less toothpaste on your toothbrush whenever you're brushing your teeth. You're just going to be a little bit more cognizant of it. Same thing can apply for finances. If you see that you're kind of low with your bank account, you're just going to naturally like be a little bit more budget friendly whenever you make your decisions. The second behavior that's induced whenever supply is scant is that you become extremely innovative and you find all sorts of ways to extract like that last bit of toothpaste from your tube. With businesses, this mostly applies to your expenses. So what expenses can you cut? Like where are you frivolously spending? How can you find ways to make your money work a little bit harder for you? Those kinds of things. I thought that was interesting. Me and Karen, this is the one that me and Karen, we both read this book. We talk about the toothpaste example a lot. Nice. See, I always get back to like, what's the like return on the investment? And if there's not a solid answer, for example, like if you are looking to purchase ad space on a t-shirt, I know that's something that a lot of businesses do. Like what's the actual return on your investment? If I purchase ad space on a t-shirt for a bunch of kids and I can attend your like pizza party at the end of the season, different game. I feel like that's part of the like getting more toothpaste out of the tube. I agree. And then the last talking point I had from the book is just the primacy effect. And I feel like this is the overarching theme of profit first. And the primacy effect is that you place additional significance on whatever you encounter first. So if you run your business with your profitability being top of mind, then you're just going to organically make better decisions to help your profit margin at the end of the day. So if you're constantly thinking about like, okay, I want to make X number of dollars in profit and you kind of have that as like a core business operations value for yourself, you're going to make decisions through that lens. Whereas if you hope that if you work hard, that maybe there'll be a profit at the end of the month, you're not prioritizing it. So you're less likely to achieve that goal. This is so interesting because you have read this book and really enjoyed it. And I'm currently working on Simon Sinek's uh, Start With Why. And I feel like this could be a different idea of what to actually start with because especially like as your business grows, I'm someone who like understands the business. Like I understand that like profit is the fuel for us to make an impact. And like, as the profit grows, then our impact can grow. And I totally get that connection. 
but like as your business grows, you are bringing more people into the team and maybe they don't necessarily have the same why. Or like Libby, you like to talk about the workplace love languages. Maybe they don't have the same workplace love language. Maybe they don't have the same values. Maybe they don't have the same driving force. And so it's interesting just reading the book and hearing you go through this book. And so I think it's really important to have your profit be your driving factor, but like why is profit your driving factor? And why do you have these other people in the team and what do they want to do with their time? And like, why are they working for you? Like I said earlier, we're just really fortunate that we're in an industry where there is really, really great benefits to our own communities by the work that we do, while at the same time being able to make a livelihood off of what we do. Yeah. So let's get into some technical terms with the profit and figuring out how to make all of this math work. So there's two types of expenses that you encounter as you're running a business. You either have the fixed expenses, which could be looked at as like you have one customer come in, you still have the same cost as if you have a hundred customers come in, or like you help one student, you still have that same cost as if you had a hundred students come in. Those are things like your rent, for example. So like rent's not going to change depending how many people you have walk through the door. Your Wi-Fi and phone bill is going to be fixed. Like those really don't change. I use the water bill for our business in particular as an example, because for the most part, just because you have like 20 more students in the building, like them flushing the toilet isn't going to drive up your water bill that significantly. Like that's a pretty consistent cost to your business. Like management, payroll, that's something that goes under fixed because like you still have that leader no matter how many kids you have coming in the door. There's also a lot of different like vendors and like software things. And then there's variable expenses and variable expenses are where it gets a little tricky. So variable expenses is stuff like payroll. So you're going to scale up and scale down your instructor staffing according to how many students you have in the door. I think variable expenses are the ones that actually get people in the most trouble because these are the ones that they're not watching and they're not looking at as being proportional to the number of customers that they're serving. Yeah, they're just expecting it to go up and they're not being mindful of like, is this actually proportionally correct? You're right. Whenever you start to grow your business and grow your student enrollment or just grow your customer base if you're not a mathnasium person, Your variable expenses can also kind of be spun off into discretionary spending where you start to feel like you're entitled to certain things, which I'm super guilty of this and Karen hates me for it. Where like, as I hit certain little benchmarks in my head, I'm like, now I get this thing. Now I'm entitled to this. So that could be like, we have a hundred kids. And so now I want to get like the super fancy roller chairs for our instructors. It's like, do I really need to go spend like $200 per chair on the fancy chairs? No, no, I do not. But I might feel entitled to whenever I'm looking at my learning center and it's so full and I'm just so happy with how, how they're performing. I'm like, rewards for everyone, extra staff pizza parties, like cupcakes for all the kids, those kinds of things. See, you say discretionary spending and my mind goes into investment. Like, how are you investing these funds? 
is the extra money you're spending on those instructors t-shirts going to help with your employee retention? No. <laughs> okay. No. Then you're the team Purely member. discretionary. <laughs> you're the team member that comes to me with all these things. And I just have to say no over and over and over again. Unless like you come with like a really compelling why. Okay. So we're talking about fixed expenses versus variable expenses. How transparent are you, Nikki, with your teams on the role that these things play in their overall profitability as a learning center? So I think there's a really big learning curve with understanding a P&L sheet. So just understanding a profit and loss sheet. And it's also complicated with looking at it for like just 30 days. Like for example, in July, we had three payrolls. So, oh my God, the P&L looks terrible. But you kind of got to understand like where that falls in the whole grand scheme of things. So with that learning curve, we share P&Ls with people that understand them and then can also take action on them. So it's not so much about like transparency or lack of transparency. It's more about like, what do you need to do your job well? And I don't believe that the center management need to have a P&L to do their job well. I do believe that my awesome district managers, Ben and Jim, need a P&L to run their teams. So they have access to it. And then I do. And I am in QuickBooks probably like every other day because I'm watching it like crazy. Yeah, it's not transparency. It's like, what do you need to do your job? So I don't know how that compares to your team, Libby. So we've always been fairly private about numbers. The only number that people really see is revenue because they're the ones handling the accounting of their learning center. But we've never been super transparent about numbers just because it's not to say it's none of their business, but I don't want them doing the math on it. Now that Steve's more involved in our organization and Steve says that you got to inspect what you expect. I know James says what gets measured moves. So we have to show them what that measurement is for it to move. So our big thing that we share with them as far as like fixed versus variable expenses is we explain to them like kind of what the break-even point is. Like they all have a general idea of what their learning center's break-even point is. And then here's how much you're spending on payroll each month, which is a variable cost. And now we're looking more closely at what their payroll is as a percent of revenue. That's something that our FBC has been helping us with. So we give them general ideas of things that are within their realm of control, as well as bring awareness to the fact that like, you might see making $15,000 in revenue as like a big, exciting number, but understand that $15,000 in a month is not like a salary. Like half of that's going to immediately disappear because of rent and other fixed costs. And then 25% of that's going to go straight to your instructor's pockets. So don't see $15,000 and say, yeah, we made $15,000. We didn't. Revenue is not profit is really what I'm trying to get at is that we're being a lot more transparent about the fact that revenue is not profit. So don't look at your learning center and get super excited because a lot of that money disappears quickly. Yes. Managing your payroll is huge. And I feel like it is the biggest influence that leaders and center managers and center directors or store managers, like it is the number one thing that 
whoever is in charge of the unit of your business can manage. And it is the number one thing that can get out of control really quickly. So it's interesting how you approach it with your team, Libby, because I kind of translate all of those numbers and I talk about it in terms of hours. So we look at the ratio of student hours to instructor hours, and that is less than four to one because that's what our instruction is delivered in. But there's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes that go into having a strong four to one ratio when you're delivering the instruction. So we actually look for a 2.5 student hours to one instruction hour. That is something that is easier to manage and we track it every week for every center. And we regularly look at your current week, last month's total ratio, your running three months ratio. You're completely right in the fact that you have to position the overarching lesson to the scope of practice of the person. So if their scope of practice is within managing payroll and scheduling staff to be able to correctly serve your students, that's how you have to position it. Whereas us on the back end, we're looking at payroll as a percent of revenue. Awesome. Okay. One last thing that we're going to talk on today. Um, and we talked on it a little bit during Ronnie's episode during problem of the week, but it got cut off on the Instagram, but Derek sent us an email, so now we have the full question, is just us talking about um, how MCOs view the profitability of their portfolio. I feel like this is something that we all do a little bit differently, so this is probably going to be kind of interesting for me and Nikki to like kind of kick back and forth, is how we make decisions looking at our portfolio, like all of our units' profitability as a whole versus how we kind of nitpick at the individual locations. So Nikki, do you have any opening thoughts on this? I feel like it's really important for people to understand in order for a territory to even be part of our portfolio, I have phenomenally high expectations of what that territory can produce. Already, I'm looking at a return on the investment of the purchase. There's a couple different types of return on the investment. So there's the financial return. There is also a return on the investment of like staffing, for example. So there was a period of time where we had an island, I'm using air quotes for everybody who's listening. And that island was a center that was just by itself. It didn't have any buddies. And it just made me so anxious all the time because of staffing. Like what if the key holder for the day was sick? I couldn't get there quickly. No one who like had a key and like could be called in and as backup could get there quickly. So I needed that center to have a buddy. That's a return on the investment too. So like peace of mind, there's also efficiency with resources. And the biggest question and this is one that I think is is hard to answer because we don't have a lot of models to go off of is how much overhead do you need to add for adding these other units? That's the one that I think can get people in trouble because if you are only adding one unit, but that makes the workload of your back office team increase like a whole person, 
you're adding a whole salary and maybe you didn't account for that when you were figuring out the profitability of that one unit. But like if you can add units and you keep your fixed costs the same, you are actually helping the whole company's profitability because you're dividing those fixed costs between more units. Yeah, so this is where we get into the conversation of economies of scale versus bulk shit. So like an economy of scale would be something like social media posts at a very high level. So it costs Nikki's marketing manager and me as the marketing manager for the lossing portfolio. It costs us no more, no less if we're posting a generic post to one location or if it's being pumped out to like eight and 18 locations because it's just cut and dry content and you're just checking off boxes at that point. So like that is an economy of scale where now if I'm adding on a ninth location, that ninth location is helping split the cost of work that's already being done, which lessens the load on my other eight locations. Whereas then there's bulk shit, which is if it's pretty much a fixed cost per unit, it becomes increasingly more expensive, but it's also a lot more burdensome on us just as like people. There is a lot of strains. There's potential opportunity costs if you were to purchase a business and then something else were to become available. So I do think it's important to invest and be prepared for growth, but I think you also need to be careful of sunken cost fallacy where you're just continuously investing to be prepared for growth, but you're never pulling the trigger or you're never jumping off the diving board to actually make that growth happen. To backtrack on an earlier point that Nikki was making about how like the temples don't grab a location that they don't think is going to benefit their portfolio and make a positive impact, whether the location on its own is a driving force for profitability or the location on its own, while it's not like the highest profit margin location, it's going to help reduce the costs of the portfolio at large. We view things very similarly. I think a huge benefit to us both having a lot of locations, and I'm sure I've looked at probably like four times as many resales as I've actually acquired. So I have a lot of just data on the business. I have a lot of numbers to look at and compare when considering a resale or a new territory as to whether or not I think it will be a profitable location for us. And then something that Nikki and I were talking about earlier, whenever we were like determining the title of our episode, we were talking about the difference between there being profit and there being a profit margin. So what is the actual raw number of what your profit is versus what is your profit as like a percentage of your revenue? These are other things that we consider when making decisions. And it's honestly kind of surprising. I think a lot of you guys would be surprised to know that my number one location for revenue has a smaller profit margin than my number two center by a lot. So while our largest location makes a lot in profit, its percentage compared to its operating costs and everything else considered is much, much smaller to our secondary center, which maybe the number is a little bit less, but as a percentage of everything else, it's so much higher. So those are decisions that you have to make as a business owner is what's more important to you, the actual raw number of your profit or your profit margin. Nice. That was a lot of heavy stuff. So for the problem of the week this week, we had the request for just some like hard cut and dry 
what are ways that you can increase your profit and also increase your profit margin. And so I wanted to also thank everyone who sent in emails and requests and then toss it to you, Libby, to answer this question to start out. I wish we had a guest on this episode, but they're very busy. There was a huge shout out to one of my neighboring territories at the 2019 convention for running like a very profitable portfolio and profitable locations. And so what they do is that they've always been a scheduling center. A lot of us have adopted scheduling during the coronavirus because it's helping us with social distancing and like managing how many kids are in the room at a time. But they've always done that. And I know now that I got everyone into the routine of scheduling their student sessions, I'm going to maintain it. Because what it does is it allows you to manage your instructor payroll a lot better. Because I'm sure everyone has the same experience that I do where they have like their peak attendance times and it helps you flatten out those peaks where it's like, okay, you can either schedule like months in advance and you know you're going to get your prime times or you're going to have to sacrifice and come maybe like 30 minutes an hour later than your original desired time but your kids still getting their lessons in and I can make the most of my instructors because it sucks whenever you have like one really busy hour and then after that you don't need the additional three staff members that you had on staff. First thing they did was that they schedule. Next thing that they do is that they limit student attendance. So Nikki, I believe you guys do the unlimited program, correct? Yeah, we do. Okay. So we used to do the unlimited program and then it backfired on us really quickly. So we stopped offering that and we limited it to 12. And then what we found is that our average student attendance is less than 10. And then everyone nickels and dimes us because they're like, we didn't come all 12. Like, can we get credit? Can we have it roll over? And the answer is no. And so we started limiting it to 10 now, where, like I said, our student attendance a lot of the times is less than 10, but at least then I don't have people thinking that they're missing out on those last two sessions. So that's what they did is that they limited the number of sessions the kids get. And then the one last thing, and this is something that Karen, we're learning a lot of hard lessons over in the lossing team during the coronavirus pandemic, is not freezing memberships, but instead you like bank your memberships. So you want to talk about Nikki? Yeah. (laughs) Nikki, honestly, like, yes, I think, I think James emailed us his verbiage on that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, so we do banks and honestly, like I've like banked things at like hand in stone. I don't, is that a regional thing? Do you have hand in stone? I have no idea what that is. Okay. It's a massage. Yeah. It sounds like, it sounds stupid. You can get like facials and massages and like other things. So I'm a member there. I get a one facial a month when I can actually go, but I'm still paying and it's still coronavirus. And so, but they allow you to bank as well. And so the banks are such that you still pay, but you are just moving your attendance to like the end of your membership term. So you are paying for the duration of your term, but you are attending for an extended period. And you wouldn't pay for that like last month, for example, because you've already paid for it. I feel like the psychology of that is better because I feel like if people see the money coming out of their account, I feel like I get a lot of people who want to frivolously freeze their account. Like, oh, my kid's doing sports, so therefore I don't want to have to worry about sending them to tutoring. But if they see the money coming out of their account, I feel like they'd be less inclined to actually bank. 
versus just like, you know what, the money's gone this month, so you're going this month. I don't know. Have you seen the psychology of that work that way? I see more of like people forgetting if they're not attending and they're not paying. So I see the freezes. That's great for profitability. It is in the short term, but in the long term, you get a lot of pissed off families and you're burning and turning your customers. There you go for problem of the week is you, uh, you just structure your membership memberships as such where you're allowing yourself to turn good revenue on those student hours. I like how you have like solid things. I had like driving questions. Like this goes back to like, what's your strategic objective? Like, are you being effective? Are you being efficient? What's your return on your investment? And like, essentially every single thing you do, you have to ask those questions. If you are swiping the business card at Staples for one pack of paper, are you being efficient? Probably not because you could have bought it at Sam's Club, but you didn't plan ahead and now you're in a pinch. Are you being effective? No. Terrible you see your time when you can have Sam's Club just deliver it to you. Yeah. And then what's your return on your investment? Probably negative. You like lost on like going to buy that pack of paper. And having it be way more expensive. Yep. Interesting. Huh. Problem of the week. Okay, y'all, that's it for episode 18, Profitability and Profit Margin. I'm your host, Libby Lawson. And I am Nikki Atwood. We are in our last week of August challenges. So wanted to add a quick plug for Clean Week. So the goal for this week is for you to get your shit together. So you want to clean up one area of your house each day of the week. So you'll have seven areas cleaned up. And don't be too ambitious. Don't say like, oh, I'm going to clean the whole downstairs. Say like, I'm going to clean my desk. And then like, I'm going to clean my coffee table. And I'm using those examples because those are things that I need to do. And then make your bed every morning. I've been, whenever I first started doing business coaching, the first thing that they made me do is start making my bed in the morning. Because if nothing else, you're starting your day off by accomplishing something. So make your bed on top of cleaning something in your room. And if you are just a neat freak or you're married to a neat freak and your house is already clean, uh, go in radius and clean up your data. Ooh, that's a good one. That was going to be my action item. My challenge for everybody listening is to go and open QuickBooks and balance your books. Ooh. Be sure they're up to date. Awesome. Well, as always, y'all, PIMDOS, there's a podcast every Monday. Download and subscribe. Bye.